Amen. There's a good story. Oops. Robbie says uh, he's not sure if we need a senior pastor because look how many people God is working in their lives and they've come. And I'm pretty sure I heard a parish council member said, I'm not sure we need youth pastors either. I'm not sure about that. (laughs) But for sure, they figured out they don't need this associate pastor because God is moving us south. And uh, so this is my last chance to be in Wilson Hall. We're here for the whole month, but my last chance to speak here. And I just want to say that it's been a real privilege and a joy for my wife and I to be here. Uh, being in this particular worship space with Brad and the band and with you guys has been great. And every Sunday that we get to do that, we know it's a privilege. So just to make sure that we understand that. Pray with me, please. Father, we do thank you for your goodness and mercy and involvement in our lives. The one who created the universe and holds the universe together is here this morning, and we rejoice in that. Father, we're so thankful that you're powerful and holy and just, but we're also really grateful that you're loving and merciful and gracious. And so we ask that you would do what you so faithfully do. Send your Holy Spirit here to minister with power in our hearts and in our minds. We want to hear your word. We want to know what you want to speak to us, and we want to be changed, Lord. That's an act of grace on your part. We sang that we want more of you. But Lord, would you give us the grace and mercy that we might give you more of us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're studying the book of Acts, which is really the story of the birth of the church. It's how things got started. And it started with Jesus coming back from the grave and spending 40 days with his disciples and teaching them and instructing them about the things that were going to happen at that time. And they said, oh, are you going to now restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, no, that's going to happen when you don't know and you don't need to know. What you guys need to focus on is you're to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the world. Be witnesses that you know that I came from God and that I conquered sin and death and hell. And I proved it when I got out of this tomb. That's what they were supposed to do. And then, as he said, he went back to heaven and they watched him go. And as he promised... They sent the Holy Spirit. God the Father and God the Son released the Holy Spirit to come. And powerful things started happening the day he showed up. They started witnessing and sharing about Christ. They went from a group of about 120 to over 10,000 people believing in Jesus in Jerusalem. The place was shaken. I mean, it wasn't that big a town, right? It's like Pittsburgh. People think of it as a city, but it's really just kind of a big, small town. And everybody was hearing all these things that were going on. And Peter was doing some amazing teaching and preaching, and also miracles were happening. And the religious leaders didn't like what was going on. So they arrested Peter and John and said, whatever you do, you quit telling people about Jesus. You quit teaching in his name. And they said, well, this is fine. You guys are the religious leaders, but God himself has come. And we know him, and we were with him, and we saw him die. And we saw him come alive. And so he told us to witness. You're telling us to be quiet. Who should we listen to? And so they faithfully went on witnessing. The second time the Jews were so uh, upset they were thinking of killing them, somebody talked them out of it, and they had them flogged, which is this humiliating, excruciating beating in a public place and in a public way to try to get them to stop witnessing. But it didn't have its effect. Our story this morning gets into a character's story named Stephen. Stephen was chosen because he was a Greek speaker 
And he was Jewish, and he knew the law, he knew God's word, but he was chosen to help the widows who were Greek speakers to get a fair deal, make sure they got their part of the food and the blessing that was being shared in the whole church. And when they were asking for men that would do this, they said, give us people who are you know, smart and wise, but full of the Holy Spirit. And man, did Stephen qualify. This guy was sold out to God. And so he starts, and I have to assume that he did a pretty good job feeding the widows. We don't actually know what else happened there, because what we do know is he was going around witnessing about who Jesus was and what Jesus had done. And like Peter, he was given this special power to do miracles. And he wasn't teaching at the main temple, because they often spoke in other languages there. He was speaking in a synagogue where they spoke Greek, because that was his strength. And he was over there, and those people got really upset with him. The ones that were leaders there, and they got angry. And so that's where we get into our reading today. A couple things are said of Stephen. First, he was a man full of grace and power. Now, what is grace? If someone were to say to you at work, oh, that person, they are full of grace. I wonder how many of us would be characterized that way, by the way. But how, what it means is winsomeness. There's this person that wants to bless others and not all about themselves. And they're not judgmental and they're not harsh. They're kind. And they're always focused on being a blessing. And that's who Stephen was. And that's why the whole group celebrated when they picked him to take care of the widows. Oh, good, it's going to be Stephen. We know the widows will be comforted by his ministry and his help. And so we know that he was like that. But also, he was a man of power, it says. And that comes into our story quite a bit. But Dr. Luke says a lot of miracles happened around this guy's life. And some people will say skeptically, oh, that can't happen, can it? People don't do that. Can you do that, Wade? Well, I have not regularly done miracles. I'm here to tell you that. But I have no doubt that this historian, Luke, who was a doctor, knew what he was talking about when he researched this. And he said, all these kind of miracles happened around Peter's life, and they happened around Stephen's life, and it was all about people understanding that what they were saying about Jesus was true. And that's what God was doing in those days. Well, in the midst of that, opposition arose. This is no surprise, is it, really? The religious leaders, we would have to kind of qualify them as being conservative in the sense that they did not want change. They liked the things the way they were. They liked the fact that they were in charge. And as long as everybody kept playing the system, they were on top of that system. So when this whole new thing happened that required a different kind of uh, response to people and didn't include them, they got upset. They got really upset. So the first thing they tried to do was get Stephen into arguments. They thought, well, we, you know, we're well-trained. We're educated. We can actually out-debate this guy. So they took him on using God's word, and they found that much to their surprise, actually they could not. He spoke with power and truth and from God's word. And so after they tried that for a while, they said, okay, that's not working. And so many people were being drawn and persuaded. We have to do something. So they got some people to lie about Stephen and make things up. And here's what the accusation was. He basically keeps um, making a mockery of Moses, who was our main man. And he's basically saying, we don't have to follow the law anymore. And all that stuff isn't true. And besides that, he's acting like you don't have to go to the temple to worship. And that that isn't what people need to do. We know that if anybody wants to know the God of Israel, they have to come to Jerusalem and they have to come to the temple. Of course, they have to stay outside because they're pagans. They're not like us Jews. But we'll help them, though, step by step, how, they, how close they can get to God. And Stephen's telling people they can come right to God in Jesus. Oh, that's a horrible thing. And so they made up these things, and they have dragged him for this court case. We're going to find out what happens when this court case takes place. What is going to happen with their accusations? 
By the way, when they're making these accusations, they look over glaringly at Stephen, and the Bible describes his face as the face of an angel, which I think you have to say, for whatever reason God was at work in Stephen's life, he had a sense of the peace of Christ that passes understanding. He was okay with what was happening. Well, you have to understand, if you had been Stephen's parents or an uncle or somebody, and you're trying to give him some advice as he's growing up, you come to these situations where you're in a conflict, and you're in a conflict with power people, right? The people that are in charge. And so what you want to know is, okay, son, if you ever find yourself in that situation, you be respectful, and you be polite, and you be quiet, and you say, yes, sir, and hopefully you get out of there and they forget who you are, because that's the best thing that can happen when you're in one of these power struggles, right? Stay out of trouble, Stephen. Don't, don't stick your neck out. Don't be that radical who has to get in their face and tell them that what they're doing is wrong. No, you just be really quiet. I just have to suspect because I know I heard those things growing up, and most of us as parents and others have tried to share that kind of message, that that's what Stephen would have understood. Oh, in this situation, when you get these riled up power players, you better keep quiet. But you see, there was a problem because Stephen had heard the same thing from Christ that the rest of the apostles had. You will be my witnesses. And just like they treated me, which was really horrible, they beat Jesus, they spit on Jesus, they humiliated Jesus in every way they could and hung him on a cross. He said, just like they treated me, that's the way they're going to treat you because you're going to become my hands and my feet and my mouth. And so that's what you should expect, Stephen. So Stephen's there and he's wrestling with these things and it comes down to this. He knew Jesus was alive. And that's all that mattered. And these people were trying to say that Jesus was not alive. And they were trying to stop them from telling other people that Jesus was alive. And it was so important to Stephen, this truth that he understood personally, that Jesus was alive, he was not going to let anybody keep him from telling that story. Jesus is alive. It's the most important question and issue in all of human history. Because, you see, if Jesus is alive, then God has come among us. And God has proven what it takes to be in right relationship with him. And what he says, we need to listen to. But if Jesus is not alive, we should eat, drink, and be merry. We shouldn't play this church game, and nor should they. They didn't really need their temple either. But the truth was, Stephen pegged his life on it. Jesus was alive. Well, let me give you the uh, Cliff's notes on the next 50 verses. Because Stephen gets up and makes a big speech in defense of uh, those accusations. Was he really the one that was mocking Israel? Did he really denounce the temple and say that it was uh, a problematic thing that wasn't needed? i just say this. He starts with Abraham, which was a good place to start in the storyline, because they believed in Abraham, and they could relate to him. He was a Jew. They were Jews. That was a good starting point. They started listening. And he said, you know, interesting, when God worked in Abraham's life, it didn't happen in Jerusalem. It happened in Mesopotamia when God started speaking to him. And God brought him here, but God never really even gave him this land. He just promised it was going to be his descendants. In fact, he said his descendants were going to go to Egypt and be slaves down there, and then God would rescue them and bring them and give them this place. So Abraham didn't need this special place that you guys call Jerusalem. And then he said about Joseph. Joseph was raised up, and God showed favor to him. He became in charge of all of Egypt. But God ministered and blessed him outside of Israel. And then he finally gets around to Moses. This one that they accused him of mocking and disrupting the teaching and the law that Moses had given. And he said, you know, God raised up Moses when he was living in Egypt. And he went to the Israelites. And there was a couple of Israelites that were being really uh, harassed by an Egyptian. And he killed the Egyptian. 
And he wanted to take leadership among his people, the Israelites. And so he comes back another day, and a couple of Israelites are fighting. And he goes in to try to stop the fighting, and they say, hey, who do you think you are? Who made you leader? I think we'll turn you over to the Egyptians for what you did the other day. We saw it, you know. And he realized they were not going to accept his leadership. So he fled the country, went out to the wilderness, turned his back on being their people. For 40 years he was in the wilderness. And then God came to him, and God didn't come to him when he went to the temple in Jerusalem, which did not exist yet. God came to him in a burning bush and spoke to him, and it was a holy place, and he worshiped God there. And God said, go lead my people to freedom. And Moses became a picture of Christ. Moses did go there, and he did miracles just like Jesus did. And he redeemed his people from that slavery just like Jesus redeems us from the slavery of sin. And he brought them out into the wilderness area in preparation to go into the promised land. But a problem happened. Instead of the Israelites obeying Moses, respecting Moses, following his leadership, Moses is up with God in the presence of God. And there's a cloud over the mountain. So the people know God is there with Moses. And they throw a big party. And they make a gold calf to worship. And in essence, they had an amazing party that was more like an orgy, just this drunken mess. And that's what Moses finds when he comes down. And so Stephen is telling his accusers this story. And they hear it, and they say, well, that's true. Well, that's true. Yeah, you're right, that did happen. And so he, he culminates his story with verse 39 of chapter 7. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. So he said, you guys are boasting about Moses. But you know, our fathers didn't really obey Moses, which is why they had to spend 40 years in the wilderness. And then we get to this real in-your-face stuff. Having finished this lesson of history, which they were listening to, they were good Jews, he was right, everything he said was truthful. Then listen to what he said in verse 51. And my question is, would you talk this way to power people if you wanted to spare your skin? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. So they've accused him of disrespecting Moses and disrespecting the temple. And he gets right back in their face and says, I'll tell you who's disrespecting Moses. Moses told you Jesus was going to come. And you killed him, just like your fathers killed all the prophets that spoke. Now, if you want to kind of win friends and influence people, this is a shaky start. This is really not typically how you want to go about, you know, a political convention or some other way where you're trying to sell something. I don't think this is typically the deal. And you can imagine their response to this. Um, verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. So their response was, in essence, they got mad. And that mad, the term in English is kind of interesting, isn't it? Because it means someone's a bit angry, a bit upset. But actually, we also use it for kind of a full loss of your mental facilities so that you just have lost control. And that's what happened to these guys. They got so angry at Stephen that they were mad. They just had the, the, uh, the riotous uh, 
taking over of their uh, group there that we're going to see expressed in their action in a minute. But that's what they were doing. What was happening to Stephen? You think he would have been terrified? You think, oh, I shouldn't have said that, should I? I you know, stuck my mouth in it again. I mean, did he think that he needed to take his words back? Did he think he needed to say, oh, guys, I didn't, I didn't really mean it. I mean, I am a good Jew. You know, I, I really was raised in this uh, place of worship and all those things. No, that's not what Stephen's doing. Look what Stephen's doing. When they're gnashing their teeth at him, it says, verse 55, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So they are gnashing their teeth in anger. And he is looking up and he sees Jesus. So I see him, guys. I see him. I see the Son of Man at the right hand of God. Well, that was his experience. What was the Jews' experience? Uh, there was a time when I was in Nairobi, Kenya, when I was in a crowd that turned into a mob. And it is a frightening thing. I was at a soccer game. It was a night game. And uh, it was between two countries in Africa. It was getting ready for the African Cup, which was a really big deal. A lot of pride at stake in who's going to win and who's going to represent themselves all the way to this, uh, possibly even to the World Cup, but it started with the African Cup. And so they sold tickets, which we were thinking, oh, we did really well. We bought tickets. We get a seat. Well, what we didn't know was they sold way more tickets than they had seats. And so they packed that stadium, and it was full. And more and more people kept coming in. We couldn't even get near the seating section, much less get to our seats. And so we're in this crowded field, and people are pressing against us, and more and more people come in. They finally locked the doors, closed the doors, and locked them with chains so that no more people could come into this packed place. The football game starts, football, soccer there. And a little bit into the game, the lights go out. It's about 9 o'clock at night in Nairobi, which is to say it's pitch black. It's been dark for about three hours. And there's kind of silence, and you can just feel the mood of the crowd. I mean, they are stirred up. They are tense. And the lights come back on, and there's a little bit of relief, and the players get back on the field, and they're getting ready to start, and then the lights go out again, and they don't come back on. And then you can just feel the rumble starting and the anxiety and people getting worked up, and then people want it out of that place. And so they start making for the doors, and they find out the doors are locked. And so they're pressing, and finally they get some of the doors open. They get the chains off, and these doors swing open, and the people flood out of there like underwater pressure, just coming out. I mean, I was so glad that none of the kids were with us. And that uh, basically all you could do is make sure you did not fall down. You didn't walk. You were just being pressed from behind and people in front of you. And you're just making sure you keep your balance and keep your feet under and you pointing down. And we get out of there and those people went out and they were flipping cars over in the street. I mean, it was madness. And that's what it was like this day when these guys are dealing with Stephen. They're so angry at him. It says, after he said, he saw Jesus. Now, what's so bad about seeing Jesus, if that's the truth? They were so mad at him, says they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices, and they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who comes into our story in a few weeks. So they drag him out to this place. They're so mad. They're so worked up. Now, what do you think stoning is like? If you want to die, this is really a brutal way to die. I mean, you are aware of what's happening. You can see what's coming. You can try to dodge some stones, but pretty soon one hits you and somebody hits you in the back, and you fall down. And these are not stones thrown from 30 or 40 yards away. Oh, I hope I can hit them. No, these are people picking up big rocks, and they're going over quite close to him, and they're smashing those rocks down on him, hoping to break bones and cause wounds. Who knows who is trying to hit his head? This is a horrible, horrible thing that is happening to Stephen. And it's a horrible, horrible thing for a mob to be caught up in. 
But these are the kind of things that happen. And so, how does Stephen respond? He did not um, defend himself at any point. All he has said so far is that Jesus, the one that you guys killed, is really the prophet sent from God, the one that is God's messenger, and you are disobedient to him, like you guys always have been disobedient to the spirit of the living God when he comes and speaks to you. Well, at this point, when they're stoning him and he's having the anguish of those moments, this is what he does. Verse 59. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Basically, he did two things. Just like Jesus on the cross surrendered his spirit to the Father, Stephen, when he was being stoned, had just seen Jesus. He said, Jesus, I surrender my spirit to you. Take my spirit. And then the last words out of his mouth, as those rocks were hitting him, the last words were, and forgive these people, they don't know what they're doing. The grace of this man came out again. He did not wish evil for them. I'm telling you, I've thought about this so many times in my life. If we're faking it as Christians and just making up these stories, when the stones start hitting, we're going to hit back. We're going to be angry. We're going to say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What about me? But if the Holy Spirit is in us and God is really at work doing what he said he's doing, building his church, then the grace of God can be sufficient even when the rocks fly. To say, oh, even now, even when I'm hurting, I don't want to hurt for that other person. God, I want you to bless them like you've blessed me. I understand that the way of your kingdom is to be blessed and to be a blessing. And that's what I want. Bless these people. Forgive them. Do not hold this sin against them. This is a tough lesson that we learned from Stephen. A tough call for us, Christ Church. Because what he modeled for us was being a radical Christian. And radical is a scary word these days. It's fallen out of favor because of the radical behavior we have in the world, uh, especially in the Islamic community. But even most people, even a lot of people in our own country, saying we don't want radical Christians, we don't want radical Muslims, we don't want anybody to be radical. We want everybody to be reasonable. And what we have to understand is what was modeled for us here was a commitment to the truth that Jesus is alive that could not be stopped. But it was done as an exercise of grace, full of grace, praying forgiveness, It meant speaking the truth even when that truth would get you in serious trouble. Now, what about you? What's your tendency about speaking the truth about Jesus Christ? Sometimes I think it doesn't take stoning to keep us from speaking about Christ. It only takes the thought that somebody might make a joke of us, might mock our faith, might think we're not as bright or intellectual or as sophisticated or whatever. And so we are quick, I think, to not radically speak for the truth. And I'm not talking about obnoxiously speaking for the truth. I'm not talking about in an uncaring way judging others because that's what the Pharisees did. Stephen was not someone who judged people. He was full of grace. His face had the face of an angel. But nonetheless, when it came to talking about Jesus, he said, the man's alive and he's God. He proved it and I know it. And I can't get, no one's going to get me to stop saying that. And that's the question I have. Sometimes, uh, you know, we think that, well, Christians should not take any unnecessary risks. And I guess you might say uh, you shouldn't be foolish. We're not actually looking for people to sign up to be martyrs. But God is calling us as Christ Church here in 2013 in this Pittsburgh area to witness to the truth of the living Christ. Even if your friends make fun of it. Even if our culture mocks us. That's what we're called to do. Uh, My wife... uh, 
read a book and just referred it to me. It's called The Insanity of God. And the interesting thing about this book, it was published this year, 2013, and it's a guy that spent about 20 years researching the persecuted church. First of all, he lived in North Africa for many years, which is a place to witness firsthand persecution. And uh, he writes about what God has done to sustain the church in places like Russia. He went and talked to those pastors who lived through three generations of a government trying to stop them talking about Jesus. And they would not stop. And he went to the Ukraine, and he found the same thing. And their pastors were thrown in jail. Some of them were murdered. Many of their families separated. But they would not stop telling people about Jesus. Then he went to China. And you can only imagine the stories coming out of China of people that will not stop talking about Jesus. He happened, this author happened to be living in Somalia in the early 90s, uh, and he was in the capital of Mogadishu when the raid took place. It ended up in the movie Black Hawk Down. Have you seen that movie? He was within blocks of where that place took place. He heard all the shots, all the commotion. He was living there in those years. There are very few believers living in Mogadishu in those days. Very, very few Somali believers. And we're about to take communion. And I just want to close with this story about this guy's experience there in Mogadishu. He was working hard to save people who were starving to death by the hundreds of thousands. And our government got involved, and the UN got involved, and some people tried to come in. But he was there on the ground because of the love of Christ. And there were so few Somali believers. But he and a few other aid workers became aware that there were a score or so of believers, Somalians who had said, oh, I get it. God sent Jesus. I can know I'm forgiven. I don't have to work as hard as I can and die and figure out whether Allah accepts me or not. In Christ Jesus, I can be accepted. And so he and two other friends made an agreement to meet with four Somali believers one day. And they usually had a security guard with them. It was pretty dangerous in Mogadishu, as you can imagine. But that day, they all made this plan to kind of go secretly at different times, different directions, and walk around the town and end up in an abandoned building together, all seven of them. And so they set out, and they ended up there. And when they got there, they had a special time of worship which you can only have. You think this is, this is a nice place to worship here. It's great to have Brad and the band and the, and the enthusiastic worship we share. But these guys were seven guys in a bombed-out building in Mogadishu. And they opened the Word of God, and they prayed to God together. And they closed their time of worship by sharing in communion. And he says it might have been the only time in years that communion had happened. He's not sure there's been communion in 20 years since this date in Mogadishu. But that day they broke bread and they said, this is the body of Christ broken for us. This is the shed blood of Christ poured out to forgive our sins. And they shared that sweet fellowship together. He said he's never really been in a worship experience like that. Months later, a radical Islamic group sent people to all four of those Somali believers' homes early in the morning and killed all four of them. And this guy was so crushed. God, what are you doing? Why do you allow this suffering? Where are you in Somalia? And he realized that the thing that we think is so unacceptable, like Stephen being stoned, is often the very plan of God to cause the witness to go out. You see, after Stephen was stoned, all the Christians fled from Jerusalem. The, church, the uh, Jewish leaders had realized we can't get them to stop by legal means. We can't intimidate them. We're going to have to arrest and harass and kill as many as we can. And so they fled for their lives. And in their fleeing, they took the testimony that Jesus is alive every place they went. And so we uh, get to see what's happening with the Somalis. It just so happens that I know a good number of people that are ministering Christ to Somalis today. Some of them are in Detroit because there's 
tens of thousands of Somalis that live in America. Some of them are in Bristol, England, because there's a large contingency of Somalis that have moved there, and believers have gone just to show them the love of Christ and share the love of Christ. Some of them are in France, and they've gone to share with Somalis, you need to know Jesus is alive, and it makes all the difference in the world. And some of them are in Africa, and they're still going places we're not supposed to go, and they're still doing those things because Jesus is alive. question is, church, what are we doing? What are we doing with this gospel? Do we treasure it? Are we well, are ready to give it away? And if you're here this morning, and you think, whoa, that, that's way over my head, Pastor. That's way too radical. I just want to encourage you, until you found that Christ is alive and found a reason that's worth dying for, telling other people, you haven't really found a reason to live. You really haven't found the foundation to build your life on until you understand, wow, this truth, this truth is worth dying for. That's what Stephen would say to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you again for the way the Holy Spirit used Luke to write this story down and all the things you've done to get this story to us. I thank you for the way Stephen was such a faithful man, so willing to speak the truth in such a difficult time. And Father, this challenges us, it confuses us in some ways, it scares us, but I'm just asking that your Spirit would come and minister to us that we might be as bold with our witness, that we might be as faithful to this truth. So much we don't understand about what you're doing, but we know this, Jesus is alive. We're about to celebrate this table because that is our faith. Minister to us, Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.